Welcome fellow pilots and other podcast listeners to another episode of the Alaska Pilots Podcast. I'm your host, Strategic Communication Chair, David Campbell. Well, we recently completed our quarterly MEC meeting, and so we figured it'd be a good time to have another State of the Union address with your chairman, Will McQuillan. We'll also be talking about a few subjects, particularly basing, contract implementation, and staffing. To help me do that today, as I mentioned, we've got your MEC chairman, Will McQuillan, MEC Executive Administrator Drew Coyle, and as a side note, Drew has recently accepted a new position as the Executive Administrator, and your Scheduling Committee Chair, Scott Rubin. Welcome, fellas. Will, as we normally do, would you start us off and give us a bit of an overview of where we are right now? I appreciate that. As you said, we just finished the quarterly MEC meeting. And I think that uh, after every one of these, there's always definitely an opportunity to educate the, the pilot group on what we talked about and uh, also update everybody on implementation, a lot of the moving pieces that are in play. And I would just say that at the meeting, you know, the hot topics that followed are exactly what we've said on these podcasts. Pilots have a lot of questions when it comes to the long term. And that's what we're going to touch on today. What are we doing about basing and things like growth? And why hasn't staffing gotten better? and trades are still not able to be executed effectively. We'll talk a little bit with Scott on that. All this was communicated directly to senior management by the reps. In addition, we updated the reps on implementation, and that's also something that we'll touch on. We've talked a lot about the original tasking in these podcasts, about what we're trying to solve, the idea of attracting and retaining pilots, because so much of the value of what we negotiated in the CBA depends upon staffing this airline right. And while the MRA was the bedrock to kind of solving that, the rest of it, like we're going to talk about basing quality of life improvements, have just got to follow. We've heard from pilots pretty clearly that these are issues, not just with these topics, but also touch on lightly about how the company communicates um, and doesn't communicate. That's on a lot of pilots' minds over various issues, uh, including one here with the leaves of absence that came out. What are they going to do specifically on these topics in the day-to-day? They have to start telling us the why. Why are we doing things? It's an issue that I press management on all the time. The industry's changing, and I mean, good grief, with United hiring street captains. We've heard you, and we want to know at least very much from our management team the why. Why are we doing things? Well, let's jump right into the basing issue. I know there's been a lot of talk about that from base chief pilots. We hear about it a lot from the pilots through the reps. And so I'd, I'd like to get your take on that. And also, if you don't mind talking a little bit about why all pilots should have some interest in this topic. Yeah. And I'll, I'll take that first part head on because for a lot of us who live in base, uh, you'd say basing, I'm not concerned about that. But uh, part of what started when we can tie this back to staffing the airline and attracting and retaining pilots is that the, the company's greatest attrition problem exists with pilots who have a 500 mile or greater commute and being put into bases that are just simply not places that they want to be. And they have better opportunities and they move on. So solving this problem does help us largely uh, staff the airline right and solve some of the attrition things that we saw. And we devoted considerable resources on this topic to take a look at, you know, if we were going to, as a team, and this was definitely a team effort, evaluate what a basing decision should take into account more than just a a pure cost metric and where the network dictates it should go, we came to some pretty good conclusions. 
Well, I think it's also worth pointing out that not only are pilots that live greater than 500 miles away at the greatest risk of attrition, it's also worth pointing out the, the pool of pilots we're trying to attract from. And when you have an airline with only five West Coast bases that are essentially west of the Cascade Crest, or as you move south into California, right along the coastline, it really limits the number of pilots that we attract. That's right, Drew. And it just becomes challenging when you do have such a West Coast-centric market. You're trying to draw from limited resources in terms of people who are within that 500-mile veil or being attracted to cities that they, they actually do want to be in. We've got a number of uh, bases that are extremely high cost of living areas to, to live in. And even if you live adjacent to them, that also adds to the, uh, the challenges of flying out of that base. So Will and Ruben, too, I know you've been looking at basing from like a more surgical level. What are you bringing to the table there? How are you, how are you doing that and what did you discover? Yeah, there's a lot that goes into making a basing decision, but especially when you're looking at it from our perspective, that what works best for the pilots. And we have a lot of resources to look at the data. Where do our pilots live currently? Where are pilots located in the industry? Where did they go to school to become a pilot? Where are these commuter hubs located where a lot of pilots live? So those are a starting point. Then you also need to take Alaska's network and say, okay, if we pick a certain region of the country, where does our network benefit and where can we actually build a base? Knowing the company's goals going forward of where they want to grow is certainly beneficial if they could articulate that to pick a region, grow that region. But does this base work for the pilots? What's the commute look like? And what's the pool of pilots that you can get? Yeah, it really is a, a function of overlaying where our current pilots are, where we think pilots want to be in the future, where our pilots have told us that they would like to move, good pilot supply, and where the network is, and where the network is poised for opportunity. And I think we've identified that it's a little bit more complex if you are looking at it from a pilot perspective than simply this is the most cost-effective city to open a base in. Yeah, I mean, you could do an optimized solution, say, tell me, optimizer, where does a base belong? or not necessarily belong, but where would it be super cheap for me to open this base? But that doesn't mean it does anything for this pilot group in the future or today that actually is a, a functional change that would be appreciated by the pilot group. Right, exactly. And one of the things that, well, there are a lot of different metrics that we looked at. And one of them is, of course, that we have pilots who are extremely happy where they are, Right. And you certainly don't want to fund that base, as we say, open that base and, and fund the growth of that base to the detriment of the pilots who are, are happy in cities and bases that we currently have in a way that would put the hurt on them. Yeah. Another way to put it is you don't want to rob Peter to pay Paul. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. There's another side to that too. Not only do you not want to take pilots away from bases they want to be, you also have to be really careful not to force pilots somewhere they don't want to be. And I think what we saw coming out of this and looking at our current bases and, and some of the struggles we've had on staffing, just looking at San Francisco in particular, we went from making San Francisco too small to making it so large on paper that functionally speaking, it just hasn't worked out the way that they thought it would work out on paper. So I, I think what we saw is we have to shoot for the sweet spot for each one of these basing options that we consider to make sure that it's providing enough utility to pilots who want to be there. And you're not forcing pilots into a location that's either difficult to commute to or isn't a desirable place to live. 
Yeah, you know, and Drew, you bring up a good point in the context of San Francisco as well, is that while we look at where a base would fund from and where the pilots would come from to fill that base, there are other basing solutions that may make perfect sense from a cost structure or network structure, but only have so much capacity in a practical manner. And that's what we've seen time and time again with San Francisco when they can load 90 first officers in through training and then they all bid immediately right out. And so you kind of have to use the tools that we have and that Ruben's team has to evaluate a base and say, aspirationally, it may make sense on paper to be this large, but in reality, its growth potential is, is limited. Yeah. And there, even if you have the reality check, you still need to have enough flying to be able to produce schedules that pilots don't mind going to work and flying. So there is that balance. If it's too small, you run into not having the ability to have flexibility in how you do trip construction in the base. If it gets too large, you can't staff it. So where's that medium point and what does that look like? And does that provide a quality of life for that pilot group? And that's really the, the sweet spot you're trying to find in all of these scenarios. Right. And the ironic thing when we're talking about the context of San Francisco, that even if its size or its growth potential is limited, the basing solutions and the way that we looked at things would actually provide relief for a number of pilots who have these transcon commutes right now clear across the country. They'd have another option, which is more desirable. So it wouldn't actually take anything away from them. Right. Alba doesn't make basing decisions. The company does. And we don't have any contract language that can compel them to do that. So why did you go through all that effort? Well, and that, that is the challenging part of this entire exercise, of course, is that the company makes the basing decisions, but we have proven time and time again that people like on Ruben's team and the entire team that's been looking at this project can help them make smarter, more refined basing decisions. We alluded to force versus surgical kind of adjustments and that there are cost-effective ways to meet both goals. And so it's certainly worth the effort to help in terms of making a smarter decision when it benefits the pilots. I mean, certainly even though we might not have language to back up basing decisions, if you're working collaboratively to solve pilot issues is always in the benefit of the pilot group, right? Absolutely. And, and so if we come to the company and say, look, here's, here's what we figured out. Hopefully there'd be a maturity level there where, you know, you could take good advice and common sense solutions. Well, and, and it's happened though. I mean, in, if we talk about where we've had, help involvement and input on company decisions, even if we don't have contractual leverage necessarily on them. I think we've proven the value time and time again in a number of areas, not just this one. And that's simply what we're trying to achieve here is to have a broader, smarter decision made and a discussion about what we want to do with basing that solves pilot problems, plain and simple. It reminds me a little bit of during the pandemic, how they were going down the road of traditional furlough and we were able to sit with them and say, hey, look, look at this way, this, the REIL and the EIL program. That's a great example of here's a better plan than, than just doing the furlough and coming up with the REILs and the incentive lines and all that. Solve their problem, let them recover faster. And that was, you know, an ALPA initiative that say, hey, before you do this, listen to us on this stuff. Same with the basing. To be honest, you know, we put a lot of time and energy and a lot of internal work went on it to identify this is what will work for our pilot group. This is what will help you attract new pilots, new hires, and retain the ones that you've already hired. 
Right. And it's good to have some receptive voices and people who are willing to listen to that broader conversation. And we've touched on it before on podcasts. And sometimes you can have a receptive voice, but at the execution level, still fall short. But just rest assured, I guess, to point a point on this is that conversations are still ongoing. And if anything, we're definitely going to pursue this. And while this, you know, is still a priority for us and, and hopefully discussions will pick back up and be ongoing, we've just identified, I know pilots are probably looking here going, well, what cities, where? And there aren't, we, we don't know where the network wants to grow. This is the part where we have to turn to the company and say, we've provided effective solutions for you and you need to give us more information about where you want to go so that we can help you again make a, de a decision. The rumor mill is all over the place on this. And I will just say as a blanket statement that we are neither opposed nor strongly in favor of any particular solution. It just really comes back to, uh, to having a conversation with us and tell us what you want to do. You can't drive that point home enough, Will. It's, it's not that we are opposed to any basing solution out there. I think that you can, you can throw out a handful of cities out there that uh, would all have a benefit to pilots. And it's not our job to be in opposition to those as long as we can influence what it looks like. And to your point, to Scott's point before, it's it's more about ensuring that it's done properly, that it's the right size, and it provides utility to the pilot group, as opposed to just a blanket, this is the most cost-effective way to do something, even if it's not effective for the pilot group. The missing data set that we need has to come for the company before we can really put our thumb on the scale of what direction they go. You know, what's your growth plan? What does that market look like? Where are you going with this five, 10 years down the future, right? So if we have that, then we can come in and say, yeah, here's what we recommend. Boom, 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 boom. But without that, we just have to be prepared for whenever that data comes in is available to us to make those decisions and help make it pilot friendly. Yeah, and I would say that that's where even if nothing does happen in the immediate future, it's been a very productive process with this team with multiple stakeholders in terms of our ALPA SMEs working. We've managed to really refine how we look at things, and I think we're in a position to help them make smarter, better decisions if they decide to execute. So we've spent a fair amount of time talking about basing, but I know that's not the only thing that's on pilots' minds, particularly pilots who may live in base. What else have you been concerned about in addressing, Will? Oh, there's just so much in terms of pain points. Um, everything from obviously parking, and that's particularly an acute situation here in Seattle, commuter hotels. But the biggest one I think that we want to spend some time talking about here has been that trading flexibility, because that really is so much of the quality of life. It all falls under the, the blanket of quality of life. And that's what we see in the exit interview data a lot. And sometimes that really does focus in on Trading flexibility, schedule flexibility, that type of a thing. And all of that is based on adequate staffing, right? Which is one of the reasons we had this big discussion about basing and all of the other things that make this place somewhere where pilots want to come to work and where in particular pilots want to stay. Exactly, David. That attract, retain impacts us because if we set required reserves in a base at a very marginal level where we think that's going to provide trading for the pilots, and we don't have the pilots to get to that level, it shuts down trading. And that's one piece of it. The other piece is in the implementation process. We've really, I'm going to call it struggled, working with management to get the crew scheduling team up to speed on 
here's the new rules of engagement. Here's what's been programmed. Here's what has not been programmed. Here's how the trade desk should work. I mean, we toiled through the summer to improve the SOP, the cruise scheduler's reference in order to process trades, only to come to find out that either the publishing of it didn't happen or the memo that they had published it didn't happen, one or the other, until two months even after we had it completed. So, I mean, this is one of the things that the scheduling floor volunteers hear from the pilot group all the time is, hey, why didn't this trade go through? Granted, sometimes the trade shouldn't have gone through. The staffing level or the language wasn't there to support that particular trade. But then oftentimes there is trades that should have gone through. And working closely with membership committee in their exit interviews, just like you alluded to, that's one of the pain points along with basing is the flexibility isn't there. As we move into the new reserve system comes a whole new set of trading rules and a whole new set of flexibility for a pilot group and getting them to execute, them being the company, to execute on that as we've negotiated is going to be a vital step moving forward. Yeah, you're hit, you hit the nail on the head that you can have language, you can have staffing, but process improvements have got to be there. And that's what we're a little bit frustrated with. And the MEC communicated directly with senior management on this issue, that process improvements have got to also happen so that we have consistent results based on the language. Ruben, did I hear you right that you know, a lot is changing in the contract, and one of the problems is the details of those changes haven't been communicated down to the actual schedulers. Yes, is the short answer to that. I think the schedulers are doing, you know, they work really hard. They're trying to do the best they can, but the tools they've been given to do that job, I don't think are, are quite up to par yet. You know, we're almost a, a solid year from when we said last December, this is when this stuff goes live. This is when trip trading goes live. And here we are a year later still having, you know, we've made progress. I don't want to say that we haven't, but are we to where we need to be yet? No. And it's a daily effort and a daily job to keep this on track and and try to make sure that the language that we negotiated gets implemented and ultimately that the pilots see the result of that. And that starts at the very top. That requires somebody setting clear expectations and there being good, solid process improvements process in place and leadership and scheduling. So Scott, you alluded to the work being done in implementation. Where are we on that? You know, we hear a lot from the pilots, especially about PBS. Is that on track? Is it going to happen on time? What's been going on? I know you've been keeping close tabs on all of that. Yeah. PBS, just an update of where we are today on that. We got a very important release at the end of October, actually October 31st from NavBlue. That release was the critical one to maintain the timeline to go live for May of 2024 bidding. So um, we got that release. Our PBS working group, along with the people on the company side that are involved in this, have been testing those new releases from NavBlue. We've inputted hundreds, if not thousands of bids already and, and done testing and done awards. There is some bugs, but they all seem like they should be able to be corrected and fixed before we go live with PBS. So all in all, I would say that PBS programming and the releases that we got are on track to maintain the timeline. What we're doing internally right now to prepare the pilot group is all the training materials are being developed. Our our PBS working group guys are working closely with the change management folks that 
are developing the videos and the training materials so that you can self-study and help learn how the PBS system works. Just last week, we got our PBS ambassador contingent put together. These 20 pilots are volunteers that will be in the crew rooms and other locations. While we go through the mock bidding, they will be able to help you put in a PBS bid, understand maybe how to enter a bid to achieve the award you're looking for a little bit better. Those folks will get trained on the NABLU system at the end of January. And this is where I really want the pilot group to tune in because I get these questions all the time after we have these discussions. The pilot will say, hey, the mock bidding's open today. How am I supposed to mock bid? No, just listen to with the timeline here because I think it's really important and it causes confusion. So the first mock bids are going to be in February. There'll be two. And then we're going to have one more in March. So in January, you'll get all the training materials able to log into NABLUE so that you can actually start seeing the system and use the materials. When we open the mock bids, we're going to have them back to back to back. So we'll have a mock bid. We'll give the award out. You'll do another mock bid, give the award out, another mock bid, give the award out. And then in April, we'll go bidding for real for the May of 2024 bid period. So that's kind of the timeline. You know, after we, we set this up, we wanted to be on the other side of the holidays because everybody's got family obligations through Thanksgiving through the end of Christmas and New Year's, right? So get on the other side of that. We'll get the PBS ambassadors trained up. They'll be doing shifts in the airports to help you understand it. And then we'll do one pairing set, meaning one set of pairings so you don't have to relearn how the trips change, whatever. The whole goal here is to learn and understand how to input a PBS bid so that you can get the result that you're looking for. And when you say you're going to do those three bids back to back, can you be a little bit more specific? Are we talking like two or three days between each or how, how will, so what will that look like? A mock bid will be open for about five days, give or take, because it changes as, as we go through. But those dates are going to be available to everybody well in advance. Nobody will be left behind. It will be common. It. You're going to do two in February. So like five days of bidding, three days to get the award out to you, a couple days to look at the award and then mock bid again. Mm -hmm. And why do you want to look at the award? Did you get a result that you thought that you should have gotten? And if not, why? And then that's your opportunity to go to the ambassador or the call the PBS hotline and try to find out those answers. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. Well, and one of the things that we, as we went through this testing, when we found a, a helpful nugget of information or what not to do, we put it on a list and that list grew out over the several days of testing. Lessons learned is what we call it. And so those will be shared with the pilot group so you don't need to make a mistake or certainly you will. That's why the mock bid's there is to go in, try, learn the system. We don't want anybody to get awarded something that wasn't because their seniority couldn't hold it and they just screwed up. That's the goal is it's a seniority-based system. Everybody should be on equal footing to be bidding. And as we get closer to this, I mean, the pilot group's going to have to be in tune and, and be paying attention and actually doing a little effort to go through the guides and, and learn this system. It's what is going to have to occur to be successful for you and your family, ultimately, when you bid. It's not hard. It just takes a little bit of effort to understand how the system works. Right. While we're on implementation, you know, one of the other keys, you already said the new reserve system is going to be you know, a game changer in a lot of ways. 
maybe touch lightly on why and then where we are on the progress with that. One thing I think is important to define what is the new reserve system, right? When we go to PBS, after you get your award and you're on reserve, you're going to come out of the award as a long call reserve with days off. You're going to be able to bid in a secondary reserve bid to bid for individual short call wraps, if you prefer. Your days off will remain the same, or you can bid to do long call non-convertible. That whole bid system is already developed by IT. We've tested it. It works good. It's pretty intuitive. So, so that secondary reserve bid is on track. When we get to the new reserve system, long calls that are convertible can be converted to short call, et cetera. But we're going to trade bid block holders and reserves alike only on the total required reserves and not the individual wraps. It becomes very simple. If in your base, the required reserves is 12 and you got 13, you can trade. It's that simple. We also have what we call bad day, worst day, where there's a math equation that you're picking up on a day that has lower coverage than the, the one that you're dropping, the trade goes through. We have aggressive pickup for reserves so that you can pick up trips plus or minus one day of your reserve duties, self-assigning on that aggressive pickup. So reserve preferences change, which we tested last week, and those look really good and intuitive. So where is all this programming that has to go into give us this new reserve system? Most of that comes from Jeppesen, which is the vendor that we have for crew access and JCTE, which JCTE is the backend crew tracker part that administers look at. A lot of this stuff is in the development mode. A lot of it has been tested. The testing though on a lot of this has found bugs to be truthful. So where we're at right now is at the end of January, we're supposed to have another release from Jeppesen that hopefully resolves several of these issues. Whatever issues that are still not resolved, we will get a release at the end of March. And the end of March, I remember this is cutting it close because we go live in April for the May bid. So it's on track. There is issues, but there's time between now and March to resolve these issues. So there's no choice but to go forward because it doesn't work in PBS without this. Everybody is aware of that. And I think that that brings up the bigger point, too, that we've faced over the last year, Scott, largely the two of us together on this, is that implementation is that we've been able to meet the deadlines, but boy, it has not been without its challenges. There have been a number of struggles along the way, both in terms of the, the programming that you alluded to but also in terms of uh, getting people to understand the language and to embrace that language fully, in particular here most recently with uh, Golden Days Off and Inviolate Days Off. Those programs rolled out in time for vacation trading, on time, on schedule, and as negotiated, but boy, it wasn't without a struggle. No, you're right. I mean, it seems like every one of these, whether it be average daily guarantee going live on time, third step going on time, and the latest that you alluded to is the golden days off and the inviolate days and the expectation of this is what we negotiated and, and this is how it's going to work. Ultimately, we spent a lot of time ensuring that. And, that, you know, the IDO and the GDO issue was a couple months where, you know, every week we thought we'd have it resolved and moving forward. And every week something else came up with it. But a lot of that's been behind the scenes stuff. And I'm super happy that Ultimately, it goes live on November 3rd for the GDOs and goes off without uh, too many hitches. It, it reportedly 
work pretty well. There, there's some latency issues in the system, which is an IT function, and they're aware of it and working on it. But the struggle has been real. It's been a little bit like pushing gravel uphill. Yeah. 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 Maybe even a boulder, right? And some of these. But, you know, and we're not alone in that. Uh, our colleagues at other airlines are that have new contracts or experiences in similar battles. And you know what? We'll just keep working on them and ensuring that they get implemented right, right? I mean, that's what, that's what the pilots ratified, and that's what our job is, is to try to enforce. Scott, just shifting gears a little bit, because I know you know about this, the Orange County Airport is restricting airplanes that are coming in there, so it looks like a little bit of a drawdown of schedule. Flesh that out for us, if you don't mind. Yeah, sure. So Orange County for noise abatement is limited by the number of seats that can fly in and out of their calendar year. The airlines globally, like all the airlines that service Orange County, increase their capacity quite a bit throughout the year. And now the Orange County Airport is saying, hey, airline industry, you're over the capacity. You have to draw down seats. So how do you draw down the seats? You can cancel flights. You can swap a a bigger airplane for a smaller airplane, et cetera. So what we understand, and this is, we're recording this on a Monday. Uh, we heard this last Thursday evening. So there probably will be more current information coming out as we get it. But what we've been told is the company's going to keep its capacity through the Thanksgiving holiday. Then going into December, start reducing that capacity. So Again, it's uh, Alaska Air Group specific as opposed to just Alaska Airlines. So there's a couple ways that they're approaching this. One is canceling some of the Horizon or SkyWest flights in and out of there to reduce that seat capacity. Secondly is to downgrade the aircraft on mainline from an 800 to a 700. And, and then thirdly would be potentially canceling an actual flight. So I don't have a list of the flight numbers. What will happen to a pilot if your flight does get canceled is you'll go into the contract under 25X cancellation makeup, and that's the process that will happen. Uh, we did advocate that if they did need to cancel mainline flights, that they did it in a out of a turn, for example, as opposed to a multi-day trip where this cancellation impacts the middle of the trip. Network did push back on that request, though. So... And by network, network planning, the, the people at the company that plan what flights go in and out of where. So to me right now, the way it sounds is the impact shouldn't be too great on the pilot group uh, that already has a December schedule with Orange County flying on it because of the cancellations coming from the commuter ranks and then just downgrading the aircraft. Well, let me change gears a little bit here. One of the things we do from time to time on these podcast episodes is address questions that we get frequently from the pilot group. And one that's been coming up lately is our chief pilot's recent letter about staffing. Can you talk about that, maybe provide some nuance? Well, I think that, yes, A, we get a lot of feedback from pilots whenever something goes out that isn't necessarily explained terribly well. But uh, certainly word choice matters. And when they went and advertised that they were seeking leave of absent participants in order to adjust for significant overstaffing, it obviously created a little bit of a reaction in the pilot group and created a reaction on our side uh, as well, you know, here within the office, because the way that we've looked at it, we simply have had a number of 
Airbus pilots who have been in transition training, the associated instructor complement that has been out uh, during that training. And then as they return to the line, yes, that creates additional pilots. I don't know that we would call it significant overstaffing, but I did uh, reach out to Scott, to Ruben, and, and to ask him and say, well, what do we really see? What does this really look like? Yeah, I mean, going into January and February, the traditional shoulder months that we, we hear about where the demand for travels down. So generally, we reduce the amount of block hours or associated credit hours that we fly. For January, we're looking to be from December to January. It's about a 12,000 hour difference, which is normal cycle that we see. So you reduce the amount of flying for January and you have a bunch of training releases coming in as well. Right. And I think that having both of those factors, in, in addition to the seasonal block hour adjustment, on top of the fact that a number of resources have now returned to the line is natural, but I don't know that we would call it significantly overstaffed, right? Yeah. I mean, we, we definitely see uh, projections in some of the bases where the uh, captain to FO ratio is not balanced, where you have, for instance, um, like in San Francisco, you have too few of FOs. And because of that, you can't build more lines. Or in Anchorage and in Portland, you have more FOs than captains. So there's an imbalance there. Seattle finally seems to have a little bit of abundance in both seats. And that's the kind of context that I think you need there. What is the motive behind offering the leaves? It's not even so much specifically that you may or may not have an, an overstaffing issue. It's it's the words that are used with a mm -hmm. lack of nuance behind what created either a greater number of pilots in one seat versus the other. And I think to your point, Will, that's really what you're getting at here is when a statement such that was put out by the chief pilot's office is made, it's very important to provide that context. What does that mean for your average line pilot? What does it mean and how is it going to affect your life when you're out flying? Without any of that context, it's, it's simply a, a blanket statement that leaves it up to the imagination of the individual pilot to fill in the blanks and, and try to figure out what it actually means. And, and that's really where I think the problem lies is you hear something from management that's unclear and, and you really don't understand the direction that they're taking or, or the reason behind the direction that they're going. Right. And that brings me back to what I was talking about at the very top of the podcast, which is that it's so important to offer, like you said, that context, but explain the whys. Why are we doing something or why have we proposed something when it comes to a company initiative? This issue of the staffing and the training also created another, coming back to David's piece on rumors, when they reduced the training capacity after the, the transition training was done. I think it's just, to your point, very critical to communicate the why behind everything that comes from the company. Maybe summarize what you guys are saying. I would just summarize it as, we just completed a, a major training cycle with the transition training from the Airbus to the Boeing. That just happened to coincide to end right when we get into a shoulder month where the network naturally pulls down the amount of flying. It just those two happen to land on, in January, and that's why you see, quote unquote, overstaffing. And going into the spring, we're going to be back to normal from all, all things that they've indicated. But to my point, we shouldn't have had to go and solve that riddle, right? The, the why. That should have been communicated very clearly in terms just as simple as that, 
to explain and the word choice of significantly overstaffed, which did trigger a few people, uh, rightfully so. And certainly when we talk about what we already talked about on this podcast, that if you're talking about trying to control attrition, using terms like that doesn't help. Thanks, Will and Scott. And so I started this conversation with mentioning that we were getting questions and one of the ways that we received those questions was from the DART program, which we just rolled out. So I was happy to see that take effect. And Drew, I, just in case people aren't very familiar with it, do you want to fill us in uh, on what that is and how it works? Sure. Uh, the The DART program is the pilot data action report. And it's a program that Alpha has been using for several years now, which essentially is a one-stop shop for pilots who have questions about contractual issues or even some of the issues we've been talking about uh, earlier in this podcast. When you have specific questions that come out, you can go to alpa.org slash DART, D-A-R-T. And under those forms, you will see a list of committees and or subject areas that pilots will have questions on. And again, it, it centralizes the ability to ask questions and get those questions in front of the right person. A lot of times pilots will know uh, of a committee volunteer and, and they'll spend some time trying to go to that committee volunteer to get the answer to their question, where that committee volunteer has to go up the chain to their chairman or other subject matter expert. What the DART program strives to do is to eliminate the extra work and that extra process and allow a pilot to pose a question directly to the subject matter experts and to those committee chairmen uh, who are capable of getting them a good answer the first time. As you said, we started rolling this program out at the very end of October. I think October 31st was a day it went live and we made the official announcement on November 1st. And since the rollout, we've seen increasing traction with the pilot group. We've calmed it several times now. And what I think I'd really like to do is for those pilots who haven't seen it yet, take a moment to familiarize yourself with the application. And again, you go to alpa.org slash dart, or the easiest way to do it uh, is to make sure you have the Alpa app downloaded on your phone. And there's a dart tab on the homepage of the Alpa app. And from that app is uh, the exact same interface that you would see online. And it allows you to go in, pick a subject, and, uh, and ask that question directly of, of the committees. You know, another nice benefit of the DART program is you'll get a response within 48 hours. It, it, it may not be the full answer to your question, but it, at least you'll get on your way and we'll get that question to the right people. Yeah, David, you're, you're absolutely correct. The, the goal is to provide that response within 48 hours. As you mentioned, there are some questions that require greater research for instance, there, there are times where we're still waiting for clarification from the company as to how something will be handled. In those cases, though, we, we still ask that our subject matter experts respond to the pilot uh, and respond to that question in a manner that indicates that we've received your question and we have people working to get you the right answer. Sometimes that does take a little bit longer, but as you stated, the goal is to ensure that you receive some form of response uh, within just a couple of days. Yeah. And another thing might be worth mentioning, if people go to the website right now, they won't see the full complement of the committees that we have on, on board. Why is that? Yeah, David. So 
The DART program to roll out with with all of our committees was a, a little bit daunting to do all in, in one phase. So what we chose to do was to roll it out in three different phases or three different increments. So while you might not see uh, a specific committee listed today, it is our goal to have all of our committees that will have uh, operating under the DART program up and running by early 2024. Right. And that doesn't mean you can't answer a question that's not listed by committee name. So whatever question you have, there's a general question area, put it in there and we'll get it answered as, as best we can and as quickly as we can. All right, fellas. Well, I think that was a good discussion on a number of important topics. Will, as we normally do, I know you've got some closing remarks. Yeah, thanks, David. I think as it was noted earlier in the podcast, even though the CBA ratification is like over a year behind us, that there are no shortages of challenges. In particular with implementation, we continue to ride this issue. It's one of the most important things that we do in the office. It's got to be right. And we're still facing challenges, as we said earlier, trying to get the language that you ratified to be adhered to. And some of that is a process improvement and an education piece. And while we do hear you in your frustrations as you watch a changing industry landscape and that you're tired of being you know, jealous of your friends at other airlines, whether that's because of faster upgrades, consistently applied language, the trading flexibility, the quality of life metrics, messaging from management that needs to explain the whys, where are we going? As pilots, when we get into an airplane, the first thing we know is where are we going, the why, and the reasoning behind it, and whether it can be done for the right reasons. And I think that that's all that we've heard consistently from the pilots in the post-ratification phase. You know, We did hear it, and the MEC certainly conveyed it at the meeting that we concluded here recently. And I do want to note, too, that stress is definitely out there, and that stress is going to grow as we get closer to the holidays. Reemphasize, like I always do, talk to each other, take care of each other. We are each other's best resource, despite whatever frustrations we may have going on either at home or here at work. While you mentioned stress, I'd like to remind everybody that we have a whole section of the MEC that's dedicated to pilot assistance, and you can read all about it on our website and it's it's uh the website that's open to your family members as well you don't need to log in to get there just go to alaskapilots.org click on pilot assistance and there's a good description of all of the committees that have their own specialty but they all help with pilot assistance and the idea behind all of these is to help the pilot before any issue that they're struggling with becomes so severe that it impacts their job or their life. And you can also just call the pilot support number, and that is 309-PPS-ALPA. So 309-PPS-ALPA, or the phone number version of that is 309 777 2572. That number is active 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and 365 days a year. And that's a perfect follow-on to the point that I made that we've just got to keep talking to each other and be good to each other, whether that's because of frustrations at home or at work, and that's a great resource. That communication, the unity that we build, it's absolutely critical as we continue to build towards contract 2025. So thanks, David. Yeah, you're welcome. And thank you, Will. 
Thank you, Scott and Drew. And I'd like to thank our listeners. This has been another episode of the Alaska Pilots Podcast. 